Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Great stuff. So let's open up our Bibles together, if we can, to the book of Acts, chapter 4. That's in your New Testament, the fifth book. And as you're getting out your Bible and opening to Acts, let me ask you a quick question. What was the last time that you had a deeply uncomfortable moment? Like one of those awkward, awkward moments. We all have those where we say something or we do something in the presence of other people and then suddenly you want nothing more than the earth to literally just swallow you whole, isn't it? We all have those moments. So I remember the evening that I went to ask for my wife's hand in marriage to my now parents-in-law. After I had said my piece, my mother-in-law literally burst into tears. And I wish I could say they were tears of joy, but they were not tears of joy. It was deeply uncomfortable, very suddenly in that room, very awkward. I spoke to one of our partners. Uh, she's at the kids' ministry, so I could tell the story. End of last week, she says she's driving a bike or riding a bike down the street in front of an old boys' school here in the city. And uh, in full view of all these boys, she suddenly breaks a bit too hard on her bike and she flips right over it and lands hard on the pavement. And she says, all these boys rush to her and they're like, Tani, are you okay? And are you? And she says, you know, physically, I was a bit bruised, but emotionally, I was broken. <laughs> Deeply uncomfortable moment. Now, for some reason, over the last 2,000 years, there have been these topics of discussion in the Christian life, the normal Christian life, that some people find energizing, but other people find a bit uncomfortable. And for some reason, one of these topics is that of the Holy Spirit, the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Some people are energized, but some feel a bit uncertain. And I think it's probably because of a lack of exposure or teaching or having pressed into this part of life. And that's what I want to say. That's sad that it is sometimes the case. Why? Because the Holy Spirit and what He does in us and through us is one of the most beautiful aspects of real Christian faith. And it's something we want to not be scared of or uncomfortable with. We want to invite so in fact, Jesus says in Luke 24, 49, he says, look, I'm sending you what my father promised. And as for you, stay in the city until you are what? Until you are empowered from on high. Jesus says there is a promise that the father made in his redemptive story with mankind that I want to give you my very presence and power, not for Sundays only or these big moments, but for everyday life, that you would live supernaturally natural. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in our series called Real Christianity. We're taking another step. It's week 10, and we are preaching through the story of the early church, the book of Acts. And where we left off last time is that one of the first miracles in the book of Acts happens. Peter and John heal this lay man. And because of all the hullabaloo that happens around that moment, they are dragged before the, the, the Jewish council, the religious elite of the day, and they scolded by them. But then we see Peter's full to the Holy Spirit, and he has this moment of bold proclamation about the good news of Jesus. We spoke about a bold faith. 
And now that they've let them go, we're going to pick up as they go back to the rest of the church. And I'm going to make one or two comments as we go. And then I'm going to speak about just for a moment from the text. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit for everyday, supernaturally natural life? And we're going to take a moment to practice that very thing as we invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. Amen. Are you happy with that? So let's read together. Acts chapter 4, as they return, verse 23, it says this. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, what did they do? They raised their voices together to God. This is so beautiful. You know, we speak about family on mission in Doxodeo. And this is exactly what you see here. Because what happens when we go on mission as Christians? And what does that mean? That's a big word. But it means that we go into everyday life and we represent in our work, in our spaces of play, in our homes. We represent God through his kingdom principles. We share the good news of Jesus and what he's done with those around us. We bring healing where there's pain in our city. We see if we can bring hope through God where there's brokenness in our city. We bring faith where there's a sense of lostness in our city. So when the church goes on mission, sometimes we come back and we energize. Wow, guys, I've got an incredible story. This person responded, or this is breakthrough. We could help this person or aid this person. But other times, it's, it's despondent, isn't it? It's like it's failure, guys. Like I reached out and I was deeply rebuffed. You know, Are we trying to help this person? There's no breakthrough. And what does that do? Mission sends you right back to what? To family. It says here they returned to their own people. We were on mission. It was crazy. We were in front of the council. Now let's get back to family. Family should send you into mission and missions should send you back to family. And what happens when they do that? It says here the response was what? They stood together in prayer. They raised their voices to God. So what was happening after this challenging moment, they start ministering to one another. What is it that God is saying over your life for the next season? What is it in your work or in your parenting? In this challenging season of being a teenager, what is God speaking to you? Let's raise our voices to God in prayer. And it's amazing. Commentators will say this is not one of those holy kind of, you know, uh, prayer meeting moments where it's like three, two, one, go, everyone praying. It's just like chaotic, like everyone's praying. That's beautiful. But the commentators say this is one of those moments where one person was leading everyone in prayer and the rest was what? They were agreeing. They were voicing their agreement. And I want to maybe invite us to start doing that as a rhythm of your faith. If you're a bit newer in this Christian journey, all of us are just trying to take steps as we follow Jesus. And one of these practices that's really blessed me over the years, that's not where I started. It's something that I've grown into is to not be passive in moments of ministry. So if you ever see me praying with a bunch of other people, maybe at home or at community group, or just before the service, we are praying together as the worship and the production team. If someone is praying, I'm not just the kind of waiting to you know, think about what I'm going to order from you know, Uber Eats a bit later. I'm agreeing. I'm saying amen. I'm saying yes. I'm giving a good mmm you know, from the inside. A good mmm in a prayer meeting is what you need. Why? Because God has created us holistically. We are body, soul, and spirit. So in worship, I worship God, as the Psalms say, with everything in me. If someone's praying, I'm in agreement with them with everything in me. 
In the sermon, you can actually say something. Isn't that just a miracle of 2021? You can agree. You can say, hmm. You can say, amen. Yeah, whatever. At community group on Wednesday, you know, we just had a moment to catch up a bit after the holidays. And at the end, we just stood together. <laughs> we just prayed for one another. God, lead us in prayer. And so we decided even some of the guys were sick and they couldn't make it. So we sent them a voice note. It was a long voice note of prayer. And it was so amazing just to get the feedback of when we stand together and we say, God, I'm, I'm challenged in mission. I need the family around me that we agree. What were they doing? They raised their voices together to God. And what was the content of the prayer? Let's read a bit further. So they said what? Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against the Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they all assemble together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. To do what? To do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Wow, that's profound. So the content of this prayer is basically this moment of reflection on what? The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And that's a very churchy, Christianese kind of word. We don't use it very often. You know, we don't say to one another, Paula, you look very sovereign this morning. Um, that's not what we do. But what does that mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? It means simply that he has full authority over all things. That God has full authority over all things. And what do they say? Because this word that they use, this word master, it's almost never used in the New Testament. And the reason they use it is in the world around them, in the Greek-speaking world around them, this word was used for two things. The first was to refer to the Caesar himself, to Julius Caesar, to say he is master, as was the custom. He was a god in the eyes of the people. And secondly, it was used to refer to the Greek gods. So their belief was in Zeus and Apollo and this whole pantheon of Greek gods, and they would speak of them as this term master. So what is the church doing when it's uttering this prayer? It's saying, firstly, that those things in our world, like the Caesars, so the political influences, the parties, the movements, the social movements in our city, our president, the ANC, the DA, the EFF, all these different things, these these positions of power and authority, what is the church saying? It's saying those things, yes, they do affect us, but they will never have the final say over our lives because God is master. Amen? And secondly, they're saying, well, like the Greek gods that had an influence in the people's identity and sense of purpose, those things that most people say your life is dependent on that makes you who you are, maybe it's your bank balance, maybe it's the accomplishments or the lack of accomplishments, maybe it's the family you come from or your socioeconomic status, the the neighborhood you live in. He says those things that people say define you, yes, they can affect me, but they can never finally define me because God is master. That's deep, friends. In a moment of being challenged, the church says, God is master. And where does this belief come from? Did it just fall out of the sky? They're just more spiritual than us? It's not true. They're normal people like you and I. This belief comes from this moment where they say what? God is the 
creator. God is the creator. They say, and immediately my rational 2020 mind goes to the mechanism. So what is it like? Is it, how did that happen? What's the science? You know, was it, was it some evolutionary process? Was it some special act of creation? How did it work? Was it this? Was it that? So I want to know the how, and what does the church do? They say, listen, the how is an interesting question, but the who is more important. The church just believes, it holds it in its heart that God is the creator of all that's seen and unseen. We don't need to fully understand God to trust God, they say. Yes, the mechanisms are interesting and deep philosophical books are written about them, but I want to trust God, not understand God fully. Now, my kids drive with me every single day, and they trust me in the car, but do you know how much they actually know about the mechanisms of the car's inner workings? About as much as their dad knows, not a whole lot, but they trust me. And so in the same sense, the church says, listen, we are not as interested in the mechanisms of creation as saying the who of creation. Who is the one who is love, who is power, who is the creator of all things, who is sovereign over all. That's what we want. And they go even further. They keep something so crazy in tension. They say that, do you know that in this very city, Pontius Pilate, the rulers, all these people, they exercise their free will in crucifying, murdering Jesus on a tree. And at the very same time, they believe that those meaningful free will choices were what? They were under the covering of a God who is stewarding all things in history exactly where he wants it to go. How does that work? How does God give us meaningful choices in this life and yet he is going to take us where we need to go? The church says it doesn't matter how it works. What matters is that it's true. What matters is that I can trust this God. We spoke about it last year. Charles Spurgeon who famously says, even when I cannot trace the hand of God in a difficult season, I can trust the heart of God. Do I need to have God figured out to follow and trust him? No, the Bible says. No, the church says. We follow him. He is sovereign. And you might think, well, I don't know. That's, I don't know what, what to make of that. You know, maybe secular humanist thought would say, that's so restrictive, this view of God. But I want to say this idea that I am free to choose and yet God is sovereign. It's so freeing to me. Why? Because secular humanism tells us, guess what? You are God. Because there is nothing. Guess what? You were born into a meaningless universe by some random chance of accidents, just a happy chemical accident that you are where you are, and you are living in a sense a meaningless life. And guess what? Because there is no God, there's no greater principle, you have to define yourself. You have to find yourself. You have to express yourself. You have to come and make yourself. And you have to make this life count for something. And then after a couple of decades, you are going to die and be in nothingness. And in the end, even the universe itself and your life will be meaningless. Is that free? Man, that feels like a ton of pressure on me. I have to be God. Truth is in me. Expression is in me. Who I am, it's all in me. And the Bible comes. Jesus comes. And he reveals a God to us who has entered into the suffering and the struggle of mankind. A God who is confronting the brokenness that we experience every single day. A God who is setting the world right that is out of joint. 
And a God who says even your deepest pain and grief will one day be swallowed up in such deep joy. It will feel like a distant memory. Now Jesus comes and he says to us, you do not have to be God because there is a God. A sovereign God, a freeing God, a God who is love, a God who is power, a God whom you can trust even if you cannot fully understand him. And so let's read this last section, verse 29. It says, And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant your servants that they may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, and this is the result, it says the place they were assembled at was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Incredible stuff, guys. And so what happens? The church has two requests of God in this moment. And it's interestingly enough, neither of the requests have anything to do with God. Keep us safe. God protects us. God, make our lives comfortable. Why? Because they realize by this point to say yes for Jesus is to say no for comfort. <laughs> to say yes for Jesus is to say no for kind of dull drum religious, just in and out safety. No, they say, if you say yes for Jesus, you're saying yes for massive adventure and uncertainty even a level of, of being unsafe, that's fine. So what do they ask for instead? They ask, number one, God, give us boldness. I've got a couple of decades in this life, and I want to have every single drop of who I am speak of Jesus. And secondly, God, will you come and confirm your work in a way that only you can do? May the Holy Spirit work through us powerfully. And it's amazing that this request had to do with this, this idea of courage. God, give us boldness. Give us excitement. Give us passion. And you might think, yeah, well, that, that's them. But I want to say this is so natural. We said it the other day, when I'm excited about something, when I've tasted something that's sweet, that's beautiful, that's good, it's my natural reaction to say, I want you to have the same. I want you to have this. And if you're saying this morning, Joe, it's, I'm not there at the moment. It's been actually quite a while since I've had that kind of excitement, that kind of joy. Then later when we're praying for one another, can I just pray Psalm 51 verse 12 over you? And David says, God, restore the joy of my salvation to me. Give me a joy once again for what you have done. Because then it will just flow out of me so naturally. And what was the response to the prayer from God's side? They prayed and what did he do? It says the building that they were, they were you know, gathering at, it was shaken. And they were filled, Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit. And obviously these Christians, most of them were Jewish people. So they would have immediately picked up on this narrative of in the Old Testament, whenever something is shaken, it's a sign of God saying, I'm in your presence in a visible and tangible way. I want to grant you what you ask. I'm with you. And so they would have recognized that immediately as this is God saying, yes, I give you this courage. I give you this faith. I give you this boldness. And what happens? Those who already know Jesus, they are filled with the Spirit and there's courage and there's passion. Now, I just want to ask us, you think, wow, sure, this is whew, a whole bunch already. But I just want to ask us our everyday life. Just think about it for a moment. Maybe if you're married, 
Guys, it's that moment when you're sitting with your spouse and you feel like it's been weeks and we're struggling, we can't, we, we're stuck. We, we aren't able to move past this issue. It's the voice of the Holy Spirit who can come and bring that word of redemption, of grace, of love, of restoration to bring you back together again. If you're in the working space, maybe the young adults, you're in a moment now where you have to bring a creative solution to something in your workspace and you feel completely ill-equipped. Like, I don't know how to do this. Adulting is hard. It's the, yes, amen. It's the Holy Spirit, younger, that can bring us that sense of creativity. It's the Holy Spirit given to us without measure that can bring that breakthrough, that creativity, that wisdom to us. Can I speak to the teenagers? Guys, you, you grew up in the most difficult season I think we've ever had to be a young person. It's a fact. Because everything around you is trying to define you. And I look at something like social media, and the whole point of social media is to make you feel sad about your own life, right? Let's just be honest. Social media is literally there to tell you as a young person who's cute, who's you know, cool, who's creative, who's competent, and you are supposed to feel, well, everyone except me. And I want to invite you to say it's the Holy Spirit, not for old people. It's the Holy Spirit in your life that can come and bring you such a sense of overwhelming identity and worth that you can walk with confidence in a world that wants to crush you by its own definitions. How about in our community groups? On a Wednesday evening, we sit there and someone is in desperate need. They feel stuck. They feel purposeless. They feel hopeless. It's not our wisdom. It's the Holy Spirit who can come in a moment and bring such a sense of redemption, such a sense of purpose, of reignition of their worth and their identity. It's speaking those words from his heart that brings change. And my question to us is, do we really want to live a Christian life without this? Do I really want to live a life without this? Because the invitation, Jesus says, the promise of his father is that you would live a supernaturally natural life. It's not weird. It's not out there. It's not, it's not uncomfortable. It's just normal Christian living. So how do we do that? How do we step into that? According to the Bible, how do we step into this kind of supernaturally natural living where we are just filled with the Holy Spirit? And the first thing really quickly is I want to encourage you to simply trust the promise of the Holy Spirit. Trust the promise. You know, the disciples, if you're saying, this is weird, I'm, I'm a bit like, Ooh, the Holy Spirit, guys, I'm unsure, it's uncomfortable. Can I tell you, join the crowd with the disciples because this made them deeply uncomfortable. Go and read the end of all the Gospels. Jesus says to them, listen, I am going back to the Father. And I am going to leave you and give you something better. And they all like, not brew. <laughs> you are not going to do that. What can be better than having God in a person next to you? And what does Jesus say to them? John 16 verse 7 is one example. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And that word counselor is almost impossible to perfectly translate in English. So all these translations, they use words like helper or encourager or mediator or comforter or counselor. But all have the same idea. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside us as God's presence and power in our 
lives. It's beautiful. So the disciples asked this question, what could ever be better than having Jesus next to you? And what does Jesus say? It's having God in you. That's much better. I'm restricted to a a, a little space of Palestinian earth for 33 years. But when my spirit is released, it's game time for the whole world. I'm not just with you, I'm in you. And this is part of the narrative of the Bible, friends. From Genesis to Revelation, there is this gradual, almost revelation of who God is to mankind. And this gradual coming closer and closer and closer as God breaks through our sin and death and brokenness. So we see literally in Genesis 1, we see that Adam and Eve, they walk in the coolness of the day with God. He's close. But when that rebellion, I want to be God, I want to run my own life, when that sets in, what is the punishment as it were? It's separation from God. And so the first ever question asked in the Bible, God says in Genesis 3, what, where are you? And that's the question that every single person for the rest of eternity is wrestling with in their hearts. Where am I? Who am I? Whose am I? But God is committed to come closer. So in Exodus, he frees his people. And then you see this this pillar of fire, this cloud leading the people. God is with them. He's close by. Later, they have the the tabernacle and the temple. And God says, I will come and inhabit the space. I'm here. I'm close. You can feel me. You can experience me. In fact, the Israelites have this, this name for God, Jehovah Shammah, that means the God who is here. But then it climaxes in this person, Jesus. When the angel comes to his mom, she says to him, you will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Here comes a God where every world religion tells you, here's a prayer, here's a chant, here's a rhythm that you can use to get to God, to reach God. And Jesus comes and he says, look at the love that God has for you, that I would come and find you, that I would reach you exactly where you are. You know there is a God who is desperate in his love for you, who's reckless, as the song often says. It's reckless that this God would so come and expose himself to chase you down. This is not a come and find me, God. This is a I come and find you, God. And it climaxes in this moment. John 14, verse 15, when Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. And the world is unable to receive him. Why? Because it doesn't see him or know him. But you, Christian, you know him. Why? Because he remains with you, and he will be in you. Friends, that's good news. (laughs) Jesus says there's something better than having me close to you. It's having my presence and my power in you. Supernaturally natural living simply starts with saying, God, I trust this promise. I trust the promise of your Holy Spirit. But secondly, just that you would pursue the person of the Holy Spirit. Don't pursue an experience or a feeling or some you know, expression, but that we would simply pursue the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, guys, let's be honest. Like you get extroverts and introverts on a spectrum of people. I think you also get a spectrum in the Christian world of the doctrine people and the experienced people. You know, you get the doctrine people, the Bible people, the study people. 
And you get the presence people, the experienced people, the pressing into people. And you know, doctrine people, they love nothing more. A date night for them would be to call up next to the fire with a nice C.S. Lewis book. You know, they don't want in South Africa a gun under their pillow. They want a good systematic theology, just close to their ear, under their pillow. And, you know, they're almost like the Ahinas in Lion King when they hear the word Mufasa. They're like, oh, it's, it's beautiful. It's like, you. So they're just like, just give me a couple of like theological words, like transubstantiation. Yo. It's like, whew, it's lacquer. Like, you know, uh, how about something like, you know, hypostatic union. Oh, it's, oh, it's nice. It's nice. The doctrine people. But then you get the experienced people. They love nothing more than on a Sunday, we halfway through the service say, guys, we're going to chuck all the plans we had and we're just going to be in the presence of God for like three hours. We're just going to lie on our faces and just be in the, we're just going to soak up the presence of God. If you use the word impartation, they're like, yes, guys, now it starts. Now we're getting to the good stuff. And my question is, which is right? Which should we be? And I go with Artie Kendall, who says, it's not either or, it's both. He says, we like the, the wings of a plane. We are supposed to be people of doctrine and spirit. We are supposed to be Bible and presence people. You know, I think of, there was a guy who would always come to our church in Bloom and he would give input. And he's one of those presence people. And then like somewhere in the worship or somewhere in the sermon, he would just stop and he would say, there it is. This is the presence. I can just, I can sense it. And I'm sitting there as like a 19 year old. I'm like, whoa, this is deep. Like he's just, he senses it just like that. It's so heavy, the presence of God. And which should we be? It's both. We are supposed to be people of both. And how do I know that? Because my question to us is when God decided to enter into human affairs, what did he give us? Did he give us a teaching or did he give us an experience? Which did he give us? He gave us a person. He gave us a person in Acts 1 that we read just a couple of weeks ago as we started the series. It says famously, verse 1, I wrote this first narrative, Theophilus, what? About all that Jesus began to do and teach. Everything that Jesus began to do and to teach, and now he's going to continue. The teaching and the doing has just started because my spirit is now here. Just imagine how different it would be if I saw my relationship with God as something that's mediated through the person of the Holy Spirit. Not some force, not just some random thoughts in my mind, but a person. So that if I am in the moment confronted by something, when I realize this is not who God has created me to be, this is sin, this is against my character as a, as a new creation, you don't think it's the scolding voice from the clouds, but it's the person who loves you and who guides you and he says, this is not who you've been made to be. Or if in a moment where I feel low, I feel defeated, I feel I'm struggling, you would not see this bar that you have to clear. I have to have perfect performance to keep this God happy, but you see this loving, gracious, truthful spirit person who comes alongside you. He says, I love you. I'm strengthening you. You will make it because I am true, because I am sustaining, because I am faithful. And my question just to us is, man, is that your experience of faith at the moment? Is that your experience of faith? This, this personal relationship with a person who speaks to you, who guides you, who interacts with you, who loves you. J.D. Greer famously says, you know, victorious Christianity 
is not found in knowing a bunch of stuff or manufacturing the right feelings. It's found by abiding in the presence of a person. Supernaturally natural living is simply saying, God, I will pursue the person of the Holy Spirit. And finally, what's this last element? We want to trust this promise and we want to pursue this person. But I want to say, can we just today, just accept the invitation of the Holy Spirit? Just accept the invitation. You know, Benjamin, our middle child, in 2016, he was still very young. The first time we went to the beach with him, literally as we were still in the parking lot, he was still strapped into his little baby seat. He manifested <laughs> the, the whole audio sensory experience of the beach and the ocean. It was, it was too much for him. He couldn't handle it in his little brain. He was like, this is crazy. Don't take me there. You know what I could have done? I could have just grabbed him and chucked him into the ocean. I could, you know, I could have dragged him and said, you will do this. You are going to get into the water. But that's not what we did because my wife is wise. So what did we do on Mother's Day? Amen. So what did we do? We invited him one step at a time. Over a couple of days, I saw him progressing to say, whoa, this, I can't go further. But I invite you just one step more. And eventually to the point where you cannot get Ben out of the water today. He's like a fish in the ocean because he loves it. He has accepted the invitation to say, God, I'm willing to go as deep as you are willing to go. Guys, we need to trust them. People who live supremely naturally, natural lives are not these high-ranking Christians with special privileges and special abilities. Or if, you know, they've all studied deep theological degrees. Or they've been anointed by some TV preacher. No, they are just normal people who say yes to the invitation of the Holy Spirit. And just before, I'm just going to ask us for a moment just to do that. Can I just maybe answer one last question? Maybe in your heart you're feeling like, yes, but I'm not sure. Don't all Christians have the Spirit? Why would we invite the Holy Spirit to fill us? And we can't do that whole teaching today, but just one or two quick thoughts. First up is that Christians, all Christians, the Bible says, are baptized into the Holy Spirit and into the church. And the word baptism is not a deep theological word. It simply means to be fully submerged into something. You can be submerged into anything. You can be submerged in your work, in your schooling. You can be submerged in a good plate of pasta. Uh, like when I got Taiki and then to watch John Wick, all three of them, they were submerged fully in the John Wick trilogy. You can be submerged in everything. And the Bible says when you become a Christian, not through your own works, but by putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus, coming down on your knees and saying, God, I want you and only you. I want to follow you as Lord and Savior. In that moment, the Bible says you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. You are adopted into the family of God. You are baptized into the Holy Spirit. He is in you forever. You cannot lose him. He can't leak out. You can't drop him somewhere and pick him up again. He is with you forever. He's the down payment of the work of Jesus. First Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. So at my moment of salvation, to put it like that, this is something that happens objectively for all Christians. It's not an experience. It's a moment that happens. It's given. But then secondly, the Bible says there is a moment where Christians who have the Spirit are empowered for their work, for their mission. 
Acts 1 verse 8 famously says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And what happens in that moment when you are, when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible says many different things. There's no set thing that has to happen. Some people receive a tongue that they speak in. Some people start speaking the word of God, prophesy. Some people just have a deep sense. That's what happened to me. When I, got, when I got filled, when I got empowered by the Holy Spirit as a Christian at 19 years old, I just in that moment had such a deep sense of my acceptance in Jesus. This tangible knowledge suddenly that I've never had before of God accepts me because of who Jesus is. Some people have this clear call suddenly of what they should be doing next in their life. So many different things. Nothing has to happen. We see in the book of Acts, I'm not going to read all the scriptures now, but we see moments where Christians, now Paul comes to them and they say, we haven't received the Spirit yet. So they pray for them. Some of them prophesy. Some of them have have gifts. The point is not what happens. The point is that we accept what God wants to do. I love what Michael Eaton says. He says, it's almost like flying in a plane. When you in a plane go over a national boundary, you don't know that it's happened. Objectively, it's taken place, but you don't sense it. That's like salvation. I have the Holy Spirit. It's done, but I didn't feel it. Like, whoa, there's the Holy Spirit inside me now. But he says, landing the plane, that you know. And when I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will know the plane has landed. Whatever the experience is. And then finally, the Bible just says, all Christians, I would encourage you regularly, just invite the Holy Spirit just to fill you. Just fill you. Ephesians 5, 18 says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled, continuous tense, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not because he's leaked out of you. It's not like the petrol price. Guys, tonight, quickly, get some of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be, you know, very, it's going to be scarce tomorrow. No. He's with us, but there's something of God. Just anoint me again. Set me apart again. Speak to me afresh again. Fill me with your spirit. Friends, the way we live a supernaturally natural life, whether you are a teacher, plumber, poet, programmer, prophet, painter, is we simply say, I accept the invitation. I accept the invitation.